Live from London, this is the Saturday Lunch with Joseph Hammond. Good afternoon or good morning, good evening, depending on whenever, wherever you are in the world. My name is Joseph Hammond. I'm a primary school music and computing specialist. Today, I'm going to be talking a bit about mental health and imposter syndrome. And my guest today is Stephen Reed, who works for Microsoft and is a pioneer of games-based learning. Live from London. This is the Saturday Lunch with Joseph Hammond on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So... Um, hope everyone's been having a good week or a good few days. Um, so coming up on today's show, as I said, I've got, um, first, uh, my guest today is Stephen Reed. Uh, now Stephen and I go back a few years. Um, I used to, um, join him. Um, he was one of the first people who kind of, introduced me to games-based learning and how all of that works and how we how we can leverage video games education technology and play-based learning to achieve great things um and i actually exhibited i actually helped him out um with a couple of builds on minecraft for projects and also exhibiting at um insomnia gaming festival um so he will be joining us um later about half past one um and we'll be talking about all sorts of stuff but first um i wanted to talk a bit about uh mental a more more solemn topic and a well some it can be quite hard to talk about but I wanted to talk a bit about mental health and I wanted to talk a bit about imposter syndrome. And I guess the reason why this came up is because I'll be honest, I I haven't had the best week in terms of my own mental health and feeling like an imposter, uh, uh, feeling like a fraud. Um, and it, I, I, I actually ended up having a, a bad uh night on on Thursday where I was yeah just got very very anxious and um had a little uh panic attack actually um and I'm I'm willing to say that and put that out there on the internet because um I am willing to I'm willing to be vulnerable to um even to the internet um um, because the way I see it, because I'm on the autistic spectrum as well, if people don't, I've said this before many times, if people don't accept who I, who I really am and my weaknesses and my vulnerabilities, then, um, they're never going to truly accept me as a person. They're never going, they, they'll, we all we all have sort of versions of ourselves that we want some people to believe that 
we are. Uh, we all have versions of ourselves that we want to put out there. But um, and social media is, of course, extremely guilty of this. If you're on social media and you um, uh, you you want to, you're basically presenting the best version of yourself. Now, um, yeah. So if you um, so if you do that, then. It, 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 it's a it's a vicious cycle where um you see you you present you the best version the best version of yourselves and the version that pe- you want people to see and then people that are following you or uh friends with you on social media i put that in quotation marks they'll get um they'll get very they'll get very that that jealousy can jealousy can happen, and then that can cause, uh, and then that can cause people to feel anxious that you know my life isn't as perfect as these, um, as as my friends on Facebook or these influencers on Instagram. Um, it can be, it can be a it can be a very toxic uh, thing. Um, but I personally. Um, with, uh, without sort of whining about it, or, or I, I, that sound no, that sounds horrible. Um, with without it sort of being the only thing I say, um, because I'm, I guess I'm in a, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I can celebrate lots of things that I am particularly strong at and particularly good at. While at the same time, I am also willing to acknowledge my weaknesses as well, and I'm I'm lucky enough to be in a position, or or, or at least um, be less afraid to share those weaknesses. Perhaps it's it's a difficult it's a difficult way of put it, of putting it because um, because there's people with far more severe mental health um pro- problems issues than me but that doesn't devalue how i'm feeling or what i'm feeling um and so yeah it is it is a tricky one to talk about but uh, i guess as teachers every uh, any people anybody who's a teacher knows um i think everybody's experienced it at some point where they feel um they feel that uh their own work or what they're doing isn't good enough and that they're not fit to be a teacher and it's even even more common in teaching than so many other professions um because <laughs> thank you lizzie geog lizzie says you're very brave to be so honest well thank you um and as as i say lizzie um i i'm 
very I'm very on I'm very honest about lots of these things because uh, the way I see it, if people are unaccept are not accepting of it, then I do not want to. Uh, then I I just have to walk away from those people or sort of have have less to do with them. It's not about being tough for those people or trying to impress those people or trying to get sympathy from those people. It's about acknowledging your own needs, uh, getting help where you need it, and also finding coping strategies or ways of overcoming or meeting those challenges head on. That that's that's the key thing. Um, that's in my opinion. Uh, Miss Sosha says, "I think that's what is important to have a com- have. I think that's what is important to have a com- as a conversation, not devaluing other experiences of mental health. I get actual panic attacks before observations, and it took a long time to admit because I assumed I assumed I'd be told every new teacher does." Um, yeah, you're right, Miss Sosha. And to be honest, this is something that I I had a, a bit of a panic attack Thursday night and um, a bit Friday morning, but I talked to my colleagues about it. I am very lucky that I have that luxury. Not everybody does. And do do I... Do I attribute it to the workload I had? Honestly, no, I don't. Not this time. Um, I attribute it to that some of a mistake that I made on um, on Thursday, a minor mistake, I catastrophized, which I can't help doing because of bad experiences in the past. So that's kind of something that. I struggle to do. But yes, unfortunately, there is an epidemic in a lot of schools where teachers are kind of expected to uh, just, well, there, yeah, there, there, there are some schools where teachers are, you know, expected to be all but almost superhuman in the amount of things they have to do in their mental health, in their physical health. Um, and, you know, expecting to dedicate every hour of every day, even after school, you know, it's, it's, we, it's, it's a lot of teachers goodwill is being very much taken advantage of. And I think lots of people in higher up positions know this. And they're not doing anything about it because, well, for a variety of reasons, but I like to believe that the most common reason is those higher up, such as senior leaders, are perhaps afraid of what the governors might think or what or what their school governors might think or what um, the, the government itself and the Department for Education might think. Oh, I've got a caller. Boogie Nights wants to call in. Um, just going to invite him in. Um, so yeah, that uh, quite happy to Okay, hello, Boogie Nights. Hey, how you doing, man? I'm good, thanks. <laughs> I'm a uh, a normal individual. Uh huh. I'm not a teacher. But okay. I've taught 
Yeah. Mm. If that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. You're not currently yeah, a teacher, but you have taught in the past. Right. And uh, it's not so much being like in the uh, realm of like elementary or college or this is never a professor. I was never anything like that. I've got a, an associates in applied science. Uh-huh. Uh, however, I've taught, trained, I've taught children my entire yeah. life. Okay. To be the best that they can. Yeah. We all want to do that. All, all good teachers. That's what right. we aspire to be. And I have no children of my own. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going through a uh, situation where my wife, she's currently pregnant, but we're separated. Blah, blah. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about. It's mm-hmm. it's teaching, teaching, mm-hmm. teaching, teaching. Yes. It's not just one plus two, two plus mm. two, anything like it. So have you oh. have you felt imposter syndrome in the past or sort of had mental health be, uh, problems or, or because of your job or because of the teaching you've done? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it gets, it, it's overwhelming. Mm, definitely. And especially through the past COVID and even before, mm. even before uh, 2020. Yeah. It was, I've been a coach. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, taught baseball. Mm. I, I basically, I'm a phys ed teacher. I'm the yeah. bottom of the ring of in coach. And it's, I'm the physical teacher, I guess, as it were. Yeah, and that you know what you that's know what I mean? that is that is a stereotype that I wish did not exist, and it also, um, to an extent, um, I it's it's much worse. I think it's much worse in America in the US than it is in the U over here in the UK. However, I do know that. You know, even even comedy shows over here like Red Dwarf, like making fun of physical education teachers. And that's something that needs to stop because, you know, if you've got increasing amounts of obesity in young people and health problems and people aren't getting out enough or getting enough exercise, then it's kind of a really there's a really toxic culture around it, because I guess in America, you also have the stereotypes of, um, you know, the best person in sport is called a jock, or um, and uh, that. Or if, it, you're, if you're the physics coach gone. or the shop teacher, you're just a lazy. All you do, you don't care about the mind, but that that's where mm. the difference is: is the mind. And it's a hundred percent not true. You know, being having a healthy body is health. Having a healthy mind as well. I, I completely right. appreciate right. And it's it's thinking about, you know, how do I 
fix this alternator or how do I mm. bowl this strike or how do I kick the perfect ball or how do I throw the perfect curveball? There's yeah. math, there's science, there's everything to it. Yeah. There's not there are tools needed to be eh, I'm just going on tangent. I'm being a fool. But do you, do you know what you um you do you do make a you do make a good point and um often um you know when uh, you hear about uh, children having less time to play and even children having less have you used a because of the academics uh, have I used a what sorry a micrometer micrometer no I haven't what is no, that it, it's a tool used to. Can you you know math correctly? Yeah. So what's a quarter inch put into decimals? And I'm not quizzing you. I'm just. Mm. Well, um, I mean, in terms of, I wouldn't know that because in terms of um, um, American measurements, I'm from the UK, so we tend to use right. centimeters. That's spaces. why I'm using millimeters into quarter inches. Point one eight, uh, one point eight seven five. Yeah, is an eighth inch, and mm -hmm. it's, you know, uh, now I'm being a dummy. <laughs> well, Spooky Nights, thank you very much for your call. It's no, great. It's great can, to uh, hear from your perspective. We can continue this uh, conversation if you'd like. If you. I, I what we tend to do on this show is we tend to um, call if if people call in they can uh, usually no longer than about five minutes. Um, so um, and I wanted to, so um, if you've got other things you want to contribute, you can include them in the text chat um, as well. But um, thank you. Absolutely, no problem. Um, thank you very so much I, for calling in. I know how to throw a very fast curveball. To my students nice <laughs> all right thank you boogie nights for that call um so yeah that that is i i guess what boogie nights was saying about you know him being a pe teacher or uh physical ed in in america and there's a lot of stereotypes around that um i i guess when you stare at if we we have to all try and move away from stereotypes because if we have stereotypes that can be a very damaging thing for anybody and doesn't matter what the stereotypes are and i know that schools both in the us and the uk do have a lot of stereotypes and i think that um yeah that can contribute to a feeling of you know, imposter, imposter syndrome, because um, I, as a music teacher myself, are, um, are my, it, uh, I have to, some of the credit towards my kids becoming better singers, better performers, better at playing instruments. Well, yeah, I was the one who, um, I was the one who in, maybe introduced them to that or maybe I was the one who um, managed to inspire my students in some way. Um, so 
I can feel proud about those things, but at but at the same time, when especially when things go wrong, I don't feel like um I don't feel like they should um well yeah it, it the the feeling can be that um you have a lot of um yeah anxiety around oh if this one lesson goes wrong that means i'm not fit to be a teacher it just takes one negative experience to bring your mood right down and it takes a lot more positive experiences to bring your mood back up i've got another caller this is nuts um okay so um hello hey this is stephen ah stephen good to see you right i'm probably not identified properly on the on the app because i only set it up today <laughs> yeah you, your your username is uh G-X-S-V-X-H-B-I. So, no, yeah. that's the one I chose. I'm only joking. All right, okay. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Stephen, have you got headphones? Because my voice is coming through. Yeah, let me... Mm. Oh, uh, no, not for my iPhone. I don't. Oh, wait a minute. I do, but they're wireless. Hang on. Cool. Just going to um, mute you for a moment while you sort that out. Um, and then right, I'm on headphones. Ah, right, that's much better. Cool. Excellent. All right. So, do you want to um, have Have you ever? Because uh, at the moment I'm talking about uh, mental health and imposter syndrome and things. Mm -hmm. Have you ever felt that before? Oh, you know, I was I was listening there to to you and Boogie Nights. Imposter syndrome happens at every level that I and I and I talk about myself, but also colleagues that, I mean, I, I work at Microsoft and we have some incredibly, some of the most professional and, and you know, amazing people on earth um, work in the organization, in the, in the, um, in the education organization. And every, yeah. every week, certainly every month, there's a conversation with someone about imposter syndrome. Um, because I think it does fundamentally affect us all as human beings, especially in a world where, you know, we're inundated every day with with opinion. We're constantly being told on social media what we should think and what would be the best way to, I mean, everything from diets to the way we teach our children to screen time to the way we play sports to whether or not our bodies look good enough. Um, you know, like everything is opinion. And so it's no surprise to me that, you know, we have, we have a struggle um, so many people have a struggle with whether or not we are good enough. Um, and so imposter syndrome really does affect us all. And yes, I have, I have found myself sitting in rooms sometimes thinking, why did they invite me? Um, but one thing I try to remember is there's two things I try to remember when I sort of face into that abyss of doubt is invariably, and, and, and I'll try to think of this as a presenter and as a teacher perspective, because I can come from both. But from a presenter perspective, I try to think the people sitting in the audience right now are here because they know you're on the roster and they want to hear what you've got to say. So I try to remember that, you know, when I'm sitting amongst, you know, some incredible peers that I think I might be an imposter among, I think actually those people are there 
and because I was on the roster and they and they clicked on this link or they came to they sat in those seats because they knew I would be here. And and secondly, I tried to also remember is that most of those people, if not all of them, don't actually know what I'm about to say. And so I might be sitting there thinking, I've not got a lot to offer. I and what if I make a mistake? What if I don't say it correctly? What if I get my stats wrong? Nobody in the audience knows. Nobody has a clue what I'm about to say. And so and so I, I'm the one that's actually full of the doubt and the, and I'm the one that believes that this is um this is the issue. And then from a teaching perspective, it's it's similar but but slightly different. And the thing to remember from that perspective is that those that little audience you've got there, every single day, they need to hear what you've got to say. They come to school because they need you. And so there is you're not an imposter. You can't possibly be an imposter where you're needed quite so much. And so I try to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, and it's similar for when I'm music teaching as well. I always say to my students, look, if you make a mistake, it's most likely that the audience aren't actually going to notice one little split note, one mm. little wrong note. Um, so, you know, if you make a mistake, carry on pretend it didn't happen as yeah. I always say to my students but uh, so we've had a few um text chats so boogie night says marching band is the most amazing and intricate thing you can do physically yeah because that's with something we don't have here in the UK we don't have marching bands um and Miss Saucia says better advice than the old imagine everyone naked card <laughs> that's yeah. a good one Miss Saucia Cool. So, um, yeah, this is uh, Stephen Reed, everyone. He is a uh, senior PM customer engagement uh, guy at Microsoft. Um, welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Joe. Thanks for um, having me. So, um, before we get into the um, uh, the questions that I've uh, a few questions that I've prepared for you in the main conversation, I'm just mm -hmm. going to play our um, adverts for about a minute or so. Go on, let's do it. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Okay, we're back. So, um, 
Stephen, the yes. uh, it's been it's been a couple of years since we've spoken, hasn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. it has. I mean, COVID COVID tends to have done that to friends and family, um, but it's been two years since we caught up. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks. How are you doing? <laughs> good. <laughs> lots, Very good. Lots, a lot's changed for you um, because um, I guess one of the first things I wanted to ask you is because mm. you um, obviously. You work for Microsoft currently, but that yeah. really surprised me because mm -hmm. you have been running Immersive Minds for many, many years before that. And I didn't think you'd be the kind of person that would give up your own business to go work for a giant corporation like Microsoft. So what was it that actually inspired you to do that? Yeah, and, and it's a valid question because actually uh, my negotiation and my kind of courting dance, if you like, with Microsoft was months and months and months long. Some people, you know, it's 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 nailed in two two weeks or, you know, the negotiations are over and the interview's done within a week or whatever. I was yeah. months and months. And actually, there was one particular um, person who I will talk about in a moment in more detail who, who actually chased me for about two years. And <laughs> so, and, and, so here's the thing, my history for your, for your listeners, my history goes back to 20 years in teaching, uh, significantly focusing my career around helping uh, my fellow teachers to engage with technology, podcasting, animation, filmmaking, virtual reality, game-based learning, you name it, I've, I've done it. And wrapping that, you know, auditing that technology, wrapping curriculum, relevant, meaningful, preferably real world impact curriculum around that technology and then putting it back into schools among my peers and um and and so that journey has taken me to you know over 70 countries in the world working with some of the most incredible teachers and students and and i and i did that all through a company called immersive minds um which so here's and here's the journey actually joe yeah and the reason i am now at microsoft is a lot of what I was doing, and you'll be aware of this, but a lot of what I was doing was what we would term as pioneering. I was, yeah. I was reaching into the void and I was creating things that I hoped and believed would make for better education tomorrow. I'm a big believer that we need to transform our education system if we're to, if, if we, if your future generations have any hope. Of I'm 100% with, with you there. And that's why I currently work for Liberty Woodlands School, which is highly progressive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think I think there's room for that everywhere. Now, that's not to say that we can all do that overnight. It, I, I've come to learn uh, that it's a long and slow process and it takes it takes the pioneers and it takes the teachers on the ground and it takes the brave leadership to to, to do all of that. Um before the infrastructure can even start to change, the our examination systems can start to, to change and so on. Um, so a lot of what I was doing was pioneering and it was kind of reaching into the void and hoping that someone would say, yeah, I'll run with that. And for every for every thousand times, you know, a, a system said, there's no time, there's no space, the parents won't like it, there's no funding. There's For every no that I got, there was one person somewhere in the world said, I'll do that with you. I'll do that. Let's let's try that with my kids, and 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 so slowly, immersive minds was born, and we ended up, you know, what as you know, South Africa, Sweden, Thailand, like we were all over the world eventually, and yep. it was then that you know corporations like Microsoft are trying to do the same, except you know where I was a a small, easily easily uh, turned 
yacht in the middle of the in the middle of the ocean. They are tankers in a harbour, and mm. so it's very difficult for them to be agile like that. And 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 that's understandable. Just sheer, sheerly, uh, you're purely on the on the the level of sheer size that they are, and and the the complexities that come with that organisation. Um, yeah. But at the same time, with that size and with that sort of lack of um, agility comes the impact they can provide. So, you know, while Immersive Minds might reach one classroom of 30 children at a time, Microsoft can help us to reach the whole of Chicago in one go. And yeah. so I had to really think long and hard about a transition from that agility to that impact. But I started to realize over time that the, you know, working, working for Microsoft and with the power that it has and the, and the, you know, the human resources that it has and the ability to put the technology in so many more children's hands, um, the, uh, that was going to be worth, that was going to be worth it provided, and I'm very, very lucky, but provided that I was, uh, I was still allowed to have the autonomy, if you like, of the, and the creativity that I had for my own work. And I met this wonderful, wonderful, um, woman called Shay Harris, who now no longer is my boss, but used to work, uh, still works for Microsoft, but used to work on my team and, and was my boss. And she was the one that sort of, we met hap haphazardly um, among events. We met in Canada. We met, then next thing we know, we're in the same place in South Africa. And she's like, you again. And then we met in, um, you know, the United States and we met in Scotland. Actually, she came over to Scotland and didn't know I was there. And nice. It was almost like destiny. She kept saying, I can't believe you're at the same event as me. And she loved the work that I was doing. And she said, please come and work for us. We can take what you do and we can, instead of doing it for 30 kids at a time or 100 kids at a time, we can do it for 100,000 kids at a time. And so that's now what I do. I'm very, very lucky to have the autonomy to do what Immersive Minds did, but on a Microsoft scale. That's awesome. So no, that that completely makes sense. And I, I'm not surprised that your negotiation lasted months, because I would I would sort of think, would Stephen Reed want to sign a contract with terms that he does not agree with? Hell no. <laughs> yeah. I know you too well uh, to, to do that. But um, no, but um, when when we were uh, when Stephen was running Immersive Minds, I um, uh, often um, helped uh, volunteered with him exhibiting at um, Insomnia Gaming Festival, um, where we demonstrated some of the things that Immersive Minds does. And that was we we we've got some good memories of that um, yes. those events. They that, they were great fun for a long time. Yeah, um, and, yeah, yeah. go on. I was just going to say, and it was it was events like that that you know we put our own money behind it, and we put our own time, and we brought volunteers. And Joe, you came along and helped. And it was events like that that really helped things like you know uh, principles of games based learning to 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 hit the public domain. So now yeah. there's loads of people in the UK, for example, even Europe and and beyond, saying, "Oh yeah, I saw that. I understand how Minecraft or." or Little Big Planet or Kerbal Space Program can be used to teach my children because I saw a video of someone at the Insomnia Gaming Festival, stuff like that. So that was actually a big launch pad for us. 
Yeah, and I know um, I credit you as one of the people that sort of got me started in my um, game space learning journey and some of the things that I do. Although I'm although I'm number one a music teacher, number mm-hmm. two I do computing and tech as well, and I incorporate some of that. And funnily enough, Stephen, I know I called you last year about um, getting my uh, Liberty Woodland School's website approved by by Microsoft. And funnily enough, they've my colleagues there have actually been, although it's very outdoors, very forest school, and mm-hmm. try to keep screens to a minimum, they've actually been some of the most open colleagues I've had to the idea of using Minecraft Education Edition for a couple of things. And what we've done with, what we've done with it, we haven't done a lot with it, but what we have done has has been has been really good and um, so yeah wonderful well and i think it's worth mentioning there again for your listeners um joe that personally you know i'm a, a huge technology advocate as as i just said about my history but actually the strength of my work and has always come from the belief that we have to combine technological technological uh, experiences with children with real world learning. Children should be writing as part of the experience, reading as part of the digital experience. Um, And I'm talking about reading real books, but then building something in Minecraft to show the comprehension of what they've read. For example, we should have outdoor learning where we're using camera technology or 3D printing technology or virtual reality technology to experience that kind of, we call it fidgetal, it's that that kind of space yeah. between the reality and so on. I, I have a Minecraft world called Influential Artists where the children can, um, they start in a, in a gallery, an art gallery, and uh, by the time they've kind of visited the, the different galleries that are in there, they've met Michelangelo and all the masters, they've done mm-hmm. a puzzle around the Mona Lisa and the, um, the, the Last Supper, they've also gone to a uh, 1 to 17,000 scale replica of the Sistine Chapel, where they then come out of the game and they help uh, Michelangelo design a fresco on paper, on graph paper, uh, that they will then go back into Minecraft and do on the ceiling, so they help Michelangelo paint the ceiling. or they go inside a P.A. Mondrian painting as a paintbrush inside a P.A. Mondrian, and then they get real canvas in real life, red, blue, yellow, black, and, and white paint, and they paint a P.A. Mondrian based on what they're seeing on their computer screens. So it's like you know, taking blocks and shapes and turning the abstract into concrete with real paint in the real world. And teachers love those worlds because they're like, oh, my kids aren't just stuck in Minecraft. They're actually coming in and out and in and out and doing physical activities in the real world. And that is critical for me across all technology. Yeah. And I've, I've had a couple of kids um, say to me, can you convince my parents that, um, you know, that what we're doing actually does have educational value? Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I guess some of our parents had a bit of a problem when we we first used minecraft education edition because their kids went home and uh, at first and this was perhaps partly my fault um because perhaps i didn't make this clear enough um mm-hmm. they went home and said oh we played minecraft today and of course when they said that some of their parents were just thinking what seriously um but then when i explained to the parents actually this is what we're doing with it this is the educational value it has most of them were were happy with that 
Um, so, got a comment from Miss Saucia saying, Minecraft is one of only two games I'm quite happy to allow my son on due to educational value. The mm. other is Warships, not quite education, World of Warships, not quite educational, but it's historically accurate mostly. Well, Miss Saucia, we, me and Stephen will be able to tell you plenty of other games that do have educational value that you might yes, not indeed. know about. Um, so, um, the... So you're obviously very much um, a games-based learning person, but also you do a lot of play-based learning and learning through play, which is something mm. that my school is very hot on, um, a lot of outdoor play and play-based learning and project-based learning. So for those perhaps that are less comfortable with the idea of playing to learn, mm -hmm. how would you convince people that, of, of its value or have, have you got any success stories perhaps that play-based learning has been really good for? Yeah, so to, I would look at this in two different ways. The first is to look back, reflect on your own life. Let's look at where you, you know, go back to your childhood and look at the things that you did as a direct comparison to the things that you do now. And so I quite often talk about the park outside. I mean, I'm looking out my window right now and there's a big tree. And, I, and there's tennis courts and people are playing tennis. In fact, it's a perfect analogy looking out the window right now because what we're looking at as I look out my window at these tennis courts and there's six people, eight people playing on the tennis courts and then in front of them, between myself and the tennis courts, there's a glorious big tree. I, I'm not really a sporty sort of person. I, I like rock climbing. I do a bit of running occasionally, but generally you wouldn't get me, you wouldn't catch me playing golf or tennis or, or or football for example yeah um because to me sport i mean it is play of course it is but it's very structured and it's it's considered to be in the adult realm you know it's like adults play tennis adults play golf um adults play football and we get kids doing it as well but ultimately we're looking at sort of adult type sports not a single one of those people on that tennis court however would ever consider just coming along and, and climbing the tree now, it's not because they don't want to climb the tree. Maybe maybe one or two of them do. Maybe they all do. Maybe there's something deep down inside them that would love to climb the tree because they did once. But society has told us that adults don't climb trees. I, yeah. I, if I went out and started climbing that tree, the likelihood is that someone in my local community would phone the police. They would mm. say, there's a man climbing a tree in, like near my house. Mm. And... No, we have literally driven playful exploration out of our system. And the only time we can justify it is when it's on a tennis court or a golf course or a football pitch. It's the only time we're allowed. Um, and so, you know, we even have signs up. Some of you might already be able to, to look at this around the, um, the your own communities. But how many times have you seen a no ball games sign yeah. in a place that is perfect for ball games? That, you know, I, I, there's one near where I live. It's a big, giant field of grass and there are no ball game signs on it. And I feel like writing to the council and saying, what else are we going to do with it? It's a big field of grass. Like if you yeah. don't allow ball games, what else do you allow? Um, it's just this, it's the it's strange. Um, there's even one near me. It's on a, it's on a church. There's a small it's a beautiful little church and it's surrounded by all this wonderful flat grass. And of course, the land belongs to the church, but still. There's a sign on the side of the church that says no games, not just ball games, just no games, no TIG, 
no dodgeball, no chess. I have this, I have this dream that one day I'm going to go and just sit on the lawn and play chess and yeah, wait for somebody yeah. to come along and say, I'm sorry, you can't do that there. Um, because, because I'm like, well, what is the challenge? It's the same with things like, you know, um, BMXing and skateboarding. I'm a big, I love BMXing and I love skateboarding. And, and I have had so many of my own peers, my own friends in their 40s saying to me, why have you got a BMX? I haven't had one of those since I was 12. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and they'll literally say it to your face because in their minds, they're thinking men don't BMX, boys do. Men don't play video games, boys do. And I'm talking about my instance, I'm, you know, women will come across the same and things. But I, I talk about, you know, my male friends saying to me, men don't climb trees, boys do. And so yeah. I, I think that's the first way I would look at that is if we want to actually discover where the magic of play is, we need to look back at what we did when we were children. Where was your fun? Where was your exploration? What did you learn by lifting up rocks and looking for crabs or insects underneath or, you know, if you're on the beach and so on? Or what did you what happens? What happened when you climbed a tree and you found the first time you ever found butterfly eggs? Um, you know, these little t thousands and thousands of tiny little orange lumps on the and it turns out they were butterfly eggs. Um, I remember all of that. I learned most about the natural world by just playing. Um, but also the second thing I would then say is we need to start, this is future projections. So the second thing is to go forward and say, well, what would happen if I took those principles and I applied them to my next meeting? So to give you a couple of case studies, two of my most successful meetings ever, which led to potentially, probably actually, if I think back on it, two of the largest contracts that I ever won as Immersive Minds was one meeting where we got a major UK charity to come and meet us and we got colouring books out and we just coloured while we talked. We, uh, it was nice. a big, long colouring book. It was based on the ocean or something. And I just had a pile of pens and everybody just coloured in while they talked. We weren't colouring in for a reason. It wasn't like a competition or a paint by numbers or anything. It was just pick up a cup, pick up a pen. And while we're talking and brainstorming and kind of going through the finances and the, and the you know, all this serious stuff that we do in business meetings, just colour in. And the feedback from that meeting was it was the most fun, productive inspiring meeting that this company had ever attended and we got the contract and then the other one nice. we did which was similar was with lego and i just i went down to london i had a big bag of lego with me which was i didn't tell them i was bringing it and when i arrived at the offices in london uh, i went into the conference center and i i emptied the, the lego on the table and i said to them we were brainstorming for a uh it was a narrative that we were trying to build for this product that would eventually that would tell a story of uh, a North Star thing that we were doing. And I just said to them, instead of like drawing this up on a whiteboard, let's just make it. Let's just make it. Choose a character. I've got loads of minifigures in there. Decorate your minifigure. Have a bit of fun with it. And then we'll actually storyboard and then animate what we're doing. And, the, and, and honestly, we were we, people at the table ranged between 25 and 65. And they were, and every single, I've got great pictures actually, of every, everyone just tucking into the Lego, building things, playing mm -hmm. things, moving trees, asking if we could have this. Is there, what about purple? Like, it was just incredible. And again, we won the contract. The, the company were like, we are going to hire you. Please come and help us to tell this story. And so, I th and, and the reason I say that, and I know, um, you've got other questions, Joe, but I just want to finish on this. No, go for it. It's the reason they were successful was because it's in us all. 
it's it's all it was already in them it didn't matter if they were 25 or 65 it didn't matter if they worked for uh scottish widows finance you know and you know insurance life insurance or if they worked for bernardo's um it didn't matter if they were school teachers or milkmen or dentists it doesn't matter it's in us we just forgot how to do it we forgot how to play yeah and do you know what um i i completely get what you're saying and you know I'm I'm kind of lucky in the sense that certainly when the kids are around me, I'm completely a hundred percent shameless that I do play with them. Mm-hmm. When um, that I I do I te- I teach my older kids, but if I'm with the nursery, especially if I'm with the nursery kids and the reception kids, and even the older children will sometimes want to include me in a game that they're playing. Mm-hmm, um, that mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm completely. Uh, open about the fact that you know I do run around with them I do I do play games with them um, and I'm lucky that the school that I'm in um, is very much um, with with obvious boundaries is very much um, uh, values that you know children can bring me into their world and which is something that in previous schools has sadly been considered, and I quote, unprofessional. Um, And also, I think, Joe, you hit the nail on the head there. It's about bringing us into children's worlds. We spend so much of our time as adults trying to drag children into our worlds, learn the way we say to learn, think of the things we, we want you to think about, wear the things we want you to wear, go to the places we want you to go, behave the way we tell you to behave. And it's, and it's almost like, if we genuinely want to reach children, just every so often, we have to go into their world. We have to, you know, let's get down on the ground and lift up rocks and find insects with them or swing in trees or play hide and seek or pretend that, you know, I, I don't know, I, just just play pretend, just, just get into their space, get into their world because that's where they're learning and it's how they're learning. And I think we, the other thing I think we do significantly in terms of the power of play and why we forget as adults is because we grossly underestimate our children constantly. Even the fact that our education system tells children if and when they can learn a certain something. And to, to, to give you an idea I of why that doesn't work for me, I'm teaching children in South Africa at the moment code. And those children are five and six years old. In fact, I started talking to them about it when they were four, mainly because they were really, their parents are educators and we were doing this Minecraft thing and they were having such fun. And I said to them, uh, I was doing something with code one day and this little girl who was just turned five and she said to me, what's that you're doing? And I said, oh, that's, uh, you know, I was doing this thing with unicorns. And she was like, is that a unicorn? How did you make it? And I said, "Um, code. And she said to me, what's code? And the only way, because this is just my nature with kids, the only way I could really explain it to her quickly was I turned to her and I said, code is magic. It's a kind of magic. I said, Uh it's like spells. If you can learn the spells, you can do anything with technology. And she was like, oh. So I showed her some stuff and it was great. And she ran away. And then her mum called me from South Africa about four weeks later and said, you need to come and do something with these kids because she'd gone, she was walking towards the front door of her house and she saw her little girl sitting with another little girl on the doorstep with her, with her backs to her. And she just stopped, you know, as parents do, just to listen in on the conversation. And she stopped and she heard her little girl saying to the other little girl, there's this thing called code. 
and it's magic. And if you can learn it, you can control technology. And she was telling this other little girl. And so now, you know, we're several months later, I'm doing these full-blown, you know, we're doing JavaScript. I mean, we're doing block-based coding, but they understand that it's about a written language and we're making unicorns and we're making lightning and we're making, we're multiplying, you know, all the sheep and all sorts of wonderful things. It's all done in Minecraft. But this little girl understands the principle that code is a language. And if you master that language, you can do stuff. And, and, and yet, when I've told teachers that, and the, you know, particularly computing studies teachers, uh, you know, I've had conversations since, and I've said to them about what I'm doing with the kids in South Africa. And they're like, yeah, but like kids aren't, you're not, you're not supposed to do that until, you know, X age or (laughs) secondary schools when it really counts. And I'm just, and I just think to myself, why would you, why would you, why would you believe that when this little girl is desperate to learn code and you're saying, well, it doesn't really count until she's 12, you know, because that's when we really start doing code. And that's because we have a system that has told us that that's what it's like for decades. Mm. So let's not underestimate our kids. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I we had um, a lot of music teachers, including myself, had actually a bit of a laugh when the uh, government's model music, so-called model music curriculum came out because mm-hmm. there were some things that just made absolutely no sense to us. Oh, you know, oh, we, we should only teach crescendo and diminuendo, getting louder, getting quieter in year four. No, reception children can't understand the concepts of getting louder and getting quieter, which which just, uh, I showed my uh, senior leadership team and they were just like, seriously, Mm -hmm. seriously, you've already done it with our reception kids. So yeah, I know exactly how that feels. Um, Now, I wanted, um, oh, just going back to the fact, um, when you mentioned skating, I just thought of Tony Hawk. He's mm-hmm. now in his 50s. He still skates. Is he a boy? No. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, well, yeah, and, and of course, it's funny because on the skating front, it's only now being celebrated as an Olympic sport. And suddenly it's legitimized. Suddenly adults have money to spend on it. You know, suddenly yeah. governments are like, oh, we could start sponsoring our athletes to get. And it's like, what happened to that in the 80s? Why did it take until the 20, you know, 2020? or to, I think it was 2019, to have skateboarding recognized as an Olympic sport. Um, yeah. And it's that funny definition between what we think is play and therefore frivolous and, you know, uh, and what we what we believe is sport and therefore sponsorable and and legitimate. And and actually, I think it starts with language um, way back when we're, we're children. If you think about it, Joan, and it might not be the same where you live, but I think there's a, a lot of people hear this. We up in Scotland... I remember going to school and being told that there was a playtime break and the bell went for playtime. And what that meant to me as a young child was all of a sudden, and I don't think I, obviously I didn't take this in, like I didn't, I didn't ponder on it, but subconsciously what that did for me as a young five-year-old or six-year-old was it told me that I had now reached a point in my life where there was a time for play and that play was limited to 15 minutes and then the rest of the time was not play, whatever that meant. I don't know what not play means, but whatever that meant. And so yeah. even the use of the language of things like playtime, we just have to be really careful about how we we use that sort of language. Because it's in schools, that's what we're telling our children. There's a time for play and it's not now. 
Yeah, um, and this is something that we try to be mindful of at, um, at Liberty Woodland School. We're, uh, and in fact, we're having a little uh, audit of, um, we, we set things up for the children to play with during their play-based learning time. Mm. And uh, they, will, they will make games that they do during free play. And, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't create, it, you see some amazing things. It doesn't mean it creates this perfect utopia where everything's happy all the time. You still have issues. We still mm. have to sort things. Um, we still have to sometimes sort issues out or conflicts with the kids and have to help them through that. But it's, um, but you know, it is, it is something that, that that's one of the reasons why Leanna Barrett, my boss set up the school in 2019 mm -hmm. Um, and for her own children to have that opportunity because the system is just not fit for purpose and knowing what we know. Now, um, I wanted to, because one of the uh, Minecraft things that you pushed a lot when you were in Immersive Minds was um, you, there's some things that are obvious that Minecraft and, and um would be good for teaching like computer coding but then you and uh your team went mm -hmm. and created the refugee crisis and teaching yeah. the tough stuff so mm -hmm. i wanted to talk a bit about that um and how you leveraged games-based learning in order to teach subjects that are perhaps a bit sensitive and you know you have to uh, just have yeah, it uh, can be tough to teach. Yeah, so I, I split the curriculum into three. The curriculum for me has always been, and I, and I reflect on this curriculum in terms of how I learned when I was a kid. Um, and look, the, the curriculum is split into three. There's the explicit curriculum. And this is not my own model either. You know, this has been um, kind of put out there. But it makes sense to me that there is an explicit curriculum. It's the, the curriculum that we agree we should all teach. There's a math, science, literacy, history, geography, and so on. And it varies slightly. You know, the Americans call it civics. We call it modern studies, etc. But it's generally there, social science and so on. Um, and that's explicit. That's, that's where we're told by the government that this is what you must teach. And this is the grade that we're looking for. And this is the comprehension we need to achieve with our children. Then there's the implicit curriculum. And this is a really interesting one because this is the one that I think as, if you've ever read The Wisdom of Crowds, you'll know what I'm talking about. But as a species, we know what we should be teaching. We know what's right to teach. And that is things like empathy and kindness and common sense and, you know, survival skills, uh, you know, finance, education, etc. When I say survival skills, I mean, even just, you know, darning material or what we used to call home economics, darning material or the basics of cooking and, you know, home finance, etc. And that's the that's the implicit curriculum. And, and, and the reason it's implicit is because we know we should but we just don't necessarily prioritize it. And some people champion it and some people don't. And some, you know, some places value it and some places don't. But it's not explicit at curriculum at government level. And then the third is null, which is we ought to be teaching it, but nobody bothers. And the reason nobody bothers is because, or nobody does, it's not that they don't bother, but it's, sometimes it's easier just not to. And it's because it's difficult. You know, it's difficult to talk about race and racism. It's difficult to talk about bullying. It's difficult to talk about, uh, you know, even sex education is it's an abject failure in the United Kingdom and other and other parts of the world because nobody knows how to or wants to talk about it and invariably then don't. Um, 
nobody wants to talk about the refugee crisis while it's happening. Nobody wants to talk about civil rights, animal cruelty. The re- you know even we don't even know how to teach um, climate change right now. It's probably the biggest issue facing the generations of children sitting in front of us, and nobody knows how to talk about it. And we so- have a we have a specialist environmentalism teacher full time goes around all the classes teaches environmentalism. Maybe wonderful. Maybe people should take a cue from us. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And 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 so what I and I've always been a big advocate of this. I'm always acutely aware that it is not my job to tell children how they should vote when they grow up. You know, vote blue or red, vote left or right. That is not my job. Because it's equally wrong for me to tell them to vote left as it is to tell them not to vote right. Um and so you know, and 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 so or or vice versa. And so we have to be very careful that we are not, you know, we are not essentially brainwashing of course our children when it comes to those difficult subjects but what we should be able to do as human beings in an education capacity is we should be able to show the children the darkness of this world and the brightness of this world and all in between and we should be able to talk to them about where something is ethically wrong or something is you know legally and physically wrong and where you know we should be able to talk to them about those things and so I decided that it's very difficult to do that with a book. It's very difficult to do it with a worksheet. It's very difficult to do it even just sitting down and talking about it because the kids don't, you know, you can talk to them and they can try to understand, but you can't make that you know, concept concrete. Or you can see it in a book, but you can't feel it because you weren't there. Um, and so, you know, you can read about Pearl Harbor, but you don't know what that was like. And so I decided that one of the ways we could help students to see the world in different ways was through the, even with a video, for example, with a video, we could have, uh, you could see a movie, but again, you then can't do anything, like you can't run when the soldier doesn't run. You know, you're watching a World War I movie, like 1918 or whatever, and you're thinking, run, get into the trench and run, but you can't because because it's an actor and it's already been pre-filmed and the artillery hits and he's down on the ground and you're thinking if he just ran, whereas with games, our students get to decide. Our students get to decide where they go, what they do, how the story unfolds. We put them in the shoes of you know, women in our gender equality work. And there's a, a gender equality piece that I do with, because um, I'm a big advocate of gender equality and teaching young girls the value of their own equality and equity, and also teaching young boys about the value of females in our society, um, in, in school and in work and as mums, and, and very often single working mums and stuff. I'm a big, big advocate of that. And so we do this Minecraft piece where um, and I'll keep this brief and then I'll jump to the refugee crisis. But we have the children work for jobs in this high story building in Minecraft. And as they do the jobs, they get paid and then they go upstairs and to the next level, level two, level three, level four, where there's another task and another task. And they love the tasks because I've got all these fun tasks for them to do. But each time they go up, they meet someone at the top of the stairs that says, congratulations, you have been promoted. And then you're going to get five diamonds instead of four. You're going to get six diamonds instead of five and so on. Except two things happen. One, I, I, I always pay the girls in my class less. I pay them four diamonds when the boys get five. I pay them five when the boys get six. And I don't mm. tell them. I just wait. I don't tell anybody this is going to happen. I just wait to see. And inevitably, there is at some point, you know, sometimes sooner or sometimes later, 
But there's two th one of two things happens. Either a girl says, hang on a minute, I'm getting paid less. Why? That's not fair. And then we stop the exercise and we discuss. Or there's a boy invariably will go, ha ha, you get less diamonds than me. And then um, I say, okay, let's stop. Tell me why that's funny. And then we discuss. And then we have this deep, just sort of like, you know, empathic conversation around, around that. Um, and then the last thing that happens is when they get to a certain floor, usually floor eight or nine, I've built a glass ceiling, the famous glass ceiling. And there's yeah. a little NPC there that says, hi, if you're, a, if, you're a, if you're a girl, you can't go any higher than this. You can settle for a career on this floor or you can, you know, move company or go have kids or something. Um, but men are welcome to continue to floor 12. And then, of course, all the boys in the class are like, yay, and they go up and they do number 10, number 11, number 12. And we stop and we discuss why that is <coughs> entirely unfair. And so I think, excuse me, I really believe that Minecraft is one of the ways that we can put children in situations that they might never ever be in or we hope they never will be and we can have them meet people like i mentioned michelangelo but let's have them meet an actual refugee um in crossing and so that then led to the refugee crisis where we have an entire world dedicated to a narrative where children flee from their homes and i made it a british situation and it was fascinating because while i was doing this and we were running it out in places like england and wales and we did it in france and sweden the British kids, and I thought this was fascinating because the French didn't, the Swedes didn't, uh, the Turkish didn't, um, but the British kids, and we're talking young, we're talking anywhere from sort of eight to 11, so many of them said, what do you mean we're getting bombed? Because I'm like, you're in a town, it's a town much like your own, you know, rows and rows of middle English, red brick housing, there's a small pub, there's a gas station, there's a, you know, a petrol station, etc. And then the kids were like, what do you mean we're getting bombed? Nobody would bomb us. And I said to this little boy, what do you mean by that? And he was like, well, we're Britain. People don't bomb Britain. And I thought that was fascinating. Mm. And then, and, and we met with this sort of attitude all the way through it. They have to, they, you know, do we trust strangers? They have to leave their family behind. These are all discussion points. They then have to, do they trust a police officer? They then have to cross a minefield. Some of them don't make it. Then they have to make a choice about which boat to get, you know, whether or not there's enough boats. And if there's not enough boats, who gets left behind? So then that's the classic exercise of, you know, a bunch of kids in a room deciding who should be left behind. And again, no on gender equality. So many times in that conversation, I had the boys in my class saying, um, uh, well, the, the, we should go because we can work and we can earn money and we can send it back to the women. And I'm just like, where did that come from? And so then wow. we discuss it. Yeah. And then we discuss, we sit down and say, let's look at the reality of that. And then we discuss it. And, and so, and then of course they go in the boat, they meet real refugees and we do interviews with real refugees through video. And then they, uh, they go into a refugee camp. They then get out of the camp and they have to look at whether or not they can exercise uh, their rights to school, law enforcement, um, food, you know, uh, banking. And, and, and it's amazing when the kids come out the other side and they're like, hang on a minute, if I'm a refugee and I get mugged, I can't go to the police because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily legally in the country. And then they start to realize that this must be a horrific way to live and so on. And so this Minecraft world really brought to life. There's a teacher down in Wales called Paul Watkins, Lanny Watkins, and he, um, Oh, yes. He ran it. And he said, he ran it with his kids. And he said that he had two Syrian children who had come into his school in Wales. Oh, and they've wow. been really struggling to integrate, really struggling. 
Um, and he said, you know, it wasn't overt bullying, but it was just his kids didn't really know how to handle them. They didn't speak the same language. Nobody was playing with them at break time. They certainly weren't on the rugby team. And he said they ran that, uh, the refugee crisis uh, exercise, the engagement um, with Minecraft for one week. And the following Monday, the two kids were on the rugby team. They were walking, getting walked home. Uh, his wow. kids were trying to learn Syrian so that they could at least say good morning. He said it yeah. just turned attitudes on its head. And I, and I genuinely believe that games can be used with children to teach the tough stuff. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And uh, I've, I've also met L Lanny Watkins and he's an absolute pro at doing this. So um, Steve, Stephen, while you were saying that, Seema, who's uh, one of the admins of Teachers Talk Radio said she loves it. It's a great way to open discussions. Great. And Miss Sorsha says agreed. Now, um, yeah, um, so yeah, the that's... Um, that's all amazing stuff. Now you've also I wanna I wanted to do two two more things with you. You've also been talking um e uh doing some esports related stuff, haven't you? So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um I'm a big believer again, like everything, um like everything, I I believe that we should be working in, in children's spaces, like in their in their unique spaces. And esports is a is a difficult one because once again, esports is uh, ultimately, if you look at the, what esports is, it's about creating a formal sport out of what otherwise children will be doing in any way, people will be doing anyway. You know, we game and someone decided that we can turn that into a competitive, um, you know, way of doing it and now there was a time when that was just land halls and nobody paid any money for it now it's big business yeah. we're talking hundreds of billions um, mm. in esports in sponsorship and all sorts <gasps> now that side of it doesn't really interest me as you will well attest i am not interested yeah. in 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 the monetary side of it what i am interested in is how we can adopt it for education and so what i started to do was think very carefully about how we could take esports and make it specifically uh, is as and for education. So esports is education, esports as education, and esports for education, rather than just esports in education, which is easy. I mean, esports in education is, you know, you set up some teams um, or you set up a league, you bring some people in, um, they play, the, you know, there's scholarships available, um, somebody funds it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's great. And actually there's a huge amount of, of there's, there's, there's great things to be done in that space. And I, I really value the esports CDU space. But my interest is in how we can use esports for curriculum learning directly. How can we be doing creative, competitive and collaborative gaming that make children want to be in a space where maths is centre or science is centre or history is the centre uh, uh, you know, piece? And then. And so I started to think about how we could do that with Minecraft, because Minecraft allows for collaborative, creative and competitive uh, gameplay. And, and on top of the curriculum stuff, I'm also a, a big advocate of the social and emotional, especially during COVID. It, I mean, imagine a space where children are, and I, I'm going to give you a little bit, a, a sort of a really touching um, email that I received in a second, but imagine we could put children in spaces where for two years they haven't been able to connect, certainly not physically see their peers. And all of a sudden they're in a gaming arena with all 12 of their favorite friends and they are collaborating or competing 
for a goal, and 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 they're in a chat space where they can they can you know communicate, they can uh, help each other, they can assess the you know peer assessment of each other's performance, um, mm. uh, they can just say how are you doing, you know that kind of stuff, and so I I kind of thought if we could do this for curriculum and social and emotional together through an esports platform, how would we do that? So I created a series of worlds in Minecraft called the Make and Model series, where we give students a theme, and that theme can be curriculum. So it's like, hey, we know for the last two weeks you've been learning about the human eye in biology. I want you in your teams, competitive team green versus yellow, I want you to compete to uh, build a section of a human eyeball and annotate that eyeball. You've got 20 minutes, there's a timer in the game, uh, which we say you've got 20 minutes off you go and you want to see it's been a it's been to quote one of the microsoft uh, folks it's been hockey stick growth we've got clients all over the world who are just like my children are desperate to do this and when I, and when they say desperate they mean they'll do maths they'll do science they'll do history history they'll do literacy they'll read entire books so that they can then create a scene from that book next week in Make and Model. And so nice. they're, they're thriving on curriculum. But also, we're seeing massive success in their children being happier because they're able to connect. They're having more fun. They're being more relaxed. They're not taken out on their little brothers and sisters when they're stuck in the house for yet another week. And testament to that is an email that I got from a South African family who said, uh, it was, it was harrowing, but also wonderful at the same time. This mother, we'd just done a, finished a big competition in South Africa with a whole group of kids. And this man and wife had uh, looked me up and found my email address and messaged me and said, I just wanted to write to you to say that we believe you have pulled our son out of a hole that we didn't think he was coming out of. He was depressed. He wasn't getting out of bed. He wasn't eating. He was, we were having raging, terrible, terrible arguments. Uh, he'd gone in to himself. He was now silent for, you know, we were really struggling and didn't know what to do. And uh, he wasn't attending his online school schooling. He was falling way behind. And then we did this esports initiative. And he said, and he decided to join the team because he loves Minecraft. He said, and literally four weeks later, he's getting out, bouncing out of bed. He's having a shower. He's eating healthy because this was all part of the esports system that we run is when we run a system of esports with our students, they must keep a sleep diary. They must drink adequate liquid and prove that they've done it. They must have a healthy diet. Uh, and we work with parents and things to do that. And, 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 she's, and the, this husband and wife said, my son is thriving. And it's only been four weeks. And she said, I honestly think you've, um, I honestly think you saved our son's life. And oh now, my God. it's That's wonderful so stuff. Incredible. It's wonderful stuff. But again, it's something that we, you know, more of us need to be doing it. Yeah, I remember taking part, uh, is it 10 years ago now? Maybe uh, 20. 12-ish. Uh, anyway, taking part in James Prothero's um, Roald Dahl's 100th birthday bill competition mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with my with my school. That was great fun. Um, you were one of the judges for that, I remember. I was. Yeah, that was cool. Um, so, um, last thing I wanted to uh, for us both to mention, we both I promised um, Miss Sorsha that we would mention other games that are great in education. Um, just gonna say Fortnite, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> not not a great one. 
Um, but Miss Sosha, we are both going to recommend some. So um, I'll I'll start off, and I'm gonna um, I'm gonna mention an activity that I did that's music based. So um, I t- I was teaching my kids about video game music, and what I did was I took um, Pac Man, I showed them how the game works, and then I said, okay, so. Um, the way we might write this as programmers is when this thing happens in the game, this sound plays. We're going to do that live. So the kids wrote down, so when um, Pac- when Pac-Man dies, we all go, wah, 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 wah. When Pac-Man eats a ghost, um, we get a hit on a big drum. When the ghosts turn blue, we um you we we do triangles etc so as an introduction to how video game music works and i had people take turns to play the game while everyone else made the sound effects played the instruments um so that's an example of like a games-based learning lesson that's not minecraft related that i did um and another one that i uh wanted to so uh, no, that's my example um go on Stephen. uh what, what what have you got oh um I, I mean i've i've used over 140 off the shelf games um yeah. i mean my career started with command and conquer red alert um and the original tomb raider on the playstation one um but if you're looking for really uh really good games for education and actually fortnite is not a no Fortnite Creative is a yes. And there's a wonderful educator called Steve Isaacs based in the United States who's doing incredible stuff with Fortnite and um, uh, through Epic. And and Fortnite Creative is actually worth having a look at. Fortnite itself, any sort of FPS that involves kids kind of running around shooting each other with guns is a no-no for me. But there is a creative element now to Fortnite and it is being used in classrooms um, around the world. I didn't um, realise Stephen uh, Steve Isaacs had really pushed that and uh, and uh, yeah, he's uh, working with Epic now and doing awesome. some wonderful stuff. Um, but for me, uh, I mean, Kerbal Space Program for learning the yes. physics of space, uh, yeah. Valiant Hearts, which is a beautiful narrative-driven story about World War One for, for and extremely depressing. <laughs> it is well, it is, but it tells the story of World War One through a very through the dog's eyes, and so yeah. it's one of those really nice ones that kind of takes you away from whether or not you know it doesn't care if you're french or german male or female black or white fat or thin doesn't care it's it cares that you're a human um you know, german or french who cares and and i love that there's also from dust if you want to explore geography and the geo- and, and uh, earth science yeah. play from dust by ubisoft which is fantastic um there's also assassin's creed uh, discovery tours so you're, you know you might be thinking wait a minute we can't use this you can't use something called assassin's creed to teach you really can they have these wonderful discovery tours in ancient egypt and ancient greece uh, where you can learn all about those in these beautifully realized i mean you need a nice machine but beautifully realized Mm. spaces on discovery tour there's also little big planet which to me is second only to minecraft um for for building those those things out there's universe sandbox which is oh, just yes. magnificent yeah just just genuinely mm-hmm. magnificent um for looking at the universe and being able to uh play around with space you know ask your kids what happens if we take the moon in our little it gives you a model of the of the universe for example and you say what happens if we take the moon and we change its mass by 0.0000001 percent 
And the kids are like, nothing. Like, that's not going to affect anything. And then you speed up the modeling by 25,000 years and you slowly watch the moon disappear into the, into the void and, and earth freezes over and the tides stop. And the kids are like, ah, oh, so if you change the moon by as little as 0.00001%, earth eventually dies. Right. What happens if we change the temperature of the sun by one degree? And so on and so on. And so you can play with space and, and see what the results are. It's just magnificent. Um, there's also yeah. um, Lost Words, if anybody's interested in doing something oh, yes. wonderful with reading. That finally came out after years and years in development, yeah. I remember. Yeah, and you run through books and you learn about words and vowels. And, and oh, it's, just, it's just wonderful. There's just so many games out there, so many. And you've um, used Age of Empires as well. Age of Empires, of course, uh, which I, and the new one, Age of Empires 4 has just been released and is lovely, especially around the UK as well. There's a lot on UK history and the Siege of York and uh, the, the War of the Roses. And, and it's just, again, magnificent. One of the nice things about Age of Empires, 4 doesn't quite have it yet, but 1, 2 and 3 do, is it comes with a map editor. So rather than playing through um, the, the scenarios, you know, Joan of Arc scenario or the William Wallace scenario or Barbarossa or whatever, which are all great, by the way, but rather than doing that, what I quite often do is give the students all of the assets, all of the game assets, every tree, every plant, every rock, every person, uh, every castle wall, everything, which is you know available in the map editor. I teach them how to use the map editor, which is really quite, I actually think it's very um, intuitive. And then I say to them, I want you to show me what it might have looked like the day that Joan of Arc was caught. So then they have to go and research online. When was she caught? Where was she caught? What did that look like? Who caught her? Was, she, was it in a castle? Was she in a cave? You know, and then, and then or, or I'll say to them, let's use the Age of Empires 3 to look at one day in the life of someone on the Oregon Trail. So then they have to go oh, yeah. and research the Oregon Trail and then they use the assets in Age of Empires 3 to create a scene from the Oregon Trail. And then they tell me, you know, they come back to me and say, well, we have these carts and we did this. And the reason there's bison in the background is because that's the native animal and so on and so on and so on. And before you know it, they, they're, they're, they're alliterating, they're telling you um, really quite in depth what they've learned about a particular point in history. So it's a great history assessment tool. And the Oregon Trail is one of the most famous educational games out there uh, oh, as well. Yeah. Right, if well... If you haven't died of dysentery, you haven't lived. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> um, so, so um, Miss Sosha, I, um, I hope that was helpful. And um, there are others that both of us can uh, recommend uh, as well. Um, but yeah, Stephen, um, I'm going to need to um, play the news and adverts again. Um, yes, and let's then, do it. And then we'll probably only have a couple of minutes to go. I'll finish with, finish with a song. Nice one. Well, Whatever I'll see. learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. 
visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Israel National News website reports on comments made by UK Education Minister Nadim Zahawi that UK universities must adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Mr Zahawi stated that the definition is essential, not optional, and that it is a way of telling everyone, students and staff, that anti-Semitism has no place anywhere. During the Holocaust Educational Trust's Lord Merlin Rees lecture, Mr Zahawi said he was not going to ease up until we see everyone fall into line on this. He also acknowledged that old hatreds were beginning to rear up again and that it was, therefore, essential to keep speaking up about the Holocaust. He pledged continued government support for the Jewish community, saying that British Jews and Jewish students who were the victims of anti-Semitism on British campuses should not be left to combat anti-Semitism on their own. In the Channel Island of Guernsey, face coverings will no longer need to be worn in classrooms from next week. The coverings will remain compulsory in communal areas for both staff and students in secondary and post-16 settings. Nick Hines, Director of Education, told ITV News, the move signals further positive steps as we will all seek to return to a more normal education experience. The move echoes changes to rules around face coverings in parts of the UK. In England, however, Boris Johnson has had to issue a statement telling secondary schools to follow the latest guidance, after some headteachers said they would encourage their students to keep wearing masks despite the change of government advice. Many school leaders have pointed to the Department for Education's advice, updated on Thursday, that states that a nursery, school or college might advise you that face coverings should temporarily be worn in communal areas or classrooms. Schools in Wales will retain face coverings for another month. In Rwanda, university researchers are being asked to help combat climate change. Researchers are being called upon to come up with proposals that could inform policy on long-term climate change adaptation. Areas of research could include soil management and agroforestry, soil and water engineering, environmental management and natural resource management. Juliet Cabra, the Director General of the Rwanda Environment Management Authority, who were working with the University of Rwanda and the Higher Education Council, said the programme seeks to enable the country to make informed policy decisions about long-term climate change adaptation. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week Steve has lost his voice. 
So I am going to take a look at visualizing in the classroom. Before I begin this is not about which product is best and comparing brands and features. This is about what you need to consider to make the best choice for your school or department. Visualizing in the classroom in my opinion is getting something that would be difficult to see into a format that a whole class can see more easily. This may be a live moving image or a still image. Also, it may be projected onto a large screen or cast out to multiple devices. The whole idea is it makes something small more accessible. The list of devices that can do this is huge, but they fall, roughly, into three categories. Visualizers, document cams and webcams. What is the difference? In sport the definition of fitness is the ability to cope with the environment around you. When you are purchasing a device, this is what you need to consider. Don't just buy one because someone else uses it and says it's amazing. Their environment may be totally different to yours. The factors that are going to affect your purchase are cost, size, software, portability, features, and what you already have in terms of audiovisual equipment. Lighting is sometimes overlooked and depending on what you are capturing can make a huge difference. Starting with the most expensive option, the visualizer. Generally, classroom visualizers come with a large footprint meaning they take up a lot of desk space. They tend to have a high-quality downward-facing camera, lighting built-in top-down and even sometimes a backlit bed. They tend to allow control from the unit so there will be little or no need to move away from the device to operate. This may be useful if a lot of time is spent using the device or furniture obstructs movement. A lot of visualizers are also standalone, meaning they work independently of your computer. However, additional software can be installed to further augment the experience. Document cameras tend to be less expensive, have a smaller footprint and be more portable compared to visualizers. However, they usually have less features and need a computer to use them. Although they are plug and play, there is normally additional software available that will provide the ability to capture still and moving images, zoom in and out like a visualizer, but normally control is via the computer it is attached to. Generally, they do not feature built-in lighting, but tend to have a built-in microphone. The cheapest option, the webcam is plug and play and may have additional software. However, the previous devices are designed for projecting something desk-based to an audience. The webcam is designed to work in a different way, but can be more versatile, especially if you move rooms frequently. You need a computer to plug it into. Some come with flexible arms and a base you can plug it into, but like the document cam, they are restricted by the length of the USB cable. Now we have an idea of what the devices are capable of. The next question is what do you already have? Do you have an interactive board? If so, imaging a pupil's book with a cheaper webcam and using pinch zoom and annotation may do the job. Or in a bright setting, an HD webcam may do the trick. In the past, the rule was the higher the price, the better quality of image. Today, that isn't necessarily so. My conclusion is before you spend out, do your research and consider the fitness of the device for your environment and your value for money. And please talk to your school technical support before you purchase anything. Sometimes devices are not compatible with school networks. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods' screen reader, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Oh man, I was laughing in the background at that screen reader. It's great. Steve always comes up with some great ones. Um, top job, Joe and Steve, as always. Um, right. Well, it's uh, safe to say we're coming to the end of my show. I'm going to finish with a little song. Um, before I do, I just want to say thank you so much to Stephen. That was some amazing conversation and amazing insight into what you do what you did in the past etc and i hope that was helpful to listeners uh so stephen thank you so much for being a guest in my show really appreciate it um and i leave you with um a song that i often um start with and yeah let, let's do this one a song that has become a favourite of some of the new nursery intake that I've had um, in, in January. So basically, you say to the children, who can show me a grumpy face? And then you sing this. I've got a grumpy face, a grumpy face, a grumpy face.
face I've got a grumpy face It looks like this And then Oh, who can show me a happy face? I've got a happy face A happy face A happy face I've got a happy face It looks like this And you can keep going uh, do all sorts of faces, get the children to, to suggest, oh, I've a surprise face. Oh, who can show me a surprise face? I've got a surprise face, a surprise face, a surprise face. I've got a surprise face, it looks like this. Um, and then sometimes it gets a bit derailed, but yeah. It's, it's all good fun. Normally I would play more songs, but the conversation with Stephen just went really, uh, just went, was just huge. And there was lots of great stuff to discuss. So uh, anyway, um, I've already overrun by nearly two minutes, so I'm going to need to stop there. Um, yeah, I'll leave you. I'll leave you with a bit more piano. <laughs> All right. No um see you, see you next time. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.